Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to role-playing game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers and of Double Exposure with their amazing game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 126, The Iceberg Method, recorded at Metatopia 2016, presented by Kenneth Height. Um, traditionally, this is the panel, I guess the series now of seminars or talks or whatever you want to call it, that I have dubbed Ken Rambles About Stuff to attempt to prevent people from over-expecting useful response in return. But uh, Metatomia is nice enough to sort of let me think about things out loud in front of you guys, so I'm going to do that. Uh, sometimes I have a thesis, sometimes I have an actual principle, Sometimes I have a collection of random thoughts. I think this time I've got at least a thesis. And uh, this is about, for those of you who are not reading the uh, description and just trusting that I will say something interesting, God forbid, um, this is about research as a designer. It's not about research as a GM. The secret to research as a GM is to do as much of it as you enjoy and to know more than the second smartest player in your group. You and the first smartest player can usually team up. Um, there, that was research as a GM that's out of the way research as a designer is both sadly and happily more work because as a designer you are you don't know who the second smartest player in your group is and the odds are they're probably pretty smart if you've sold a hundred copies what are the odds that you know more about everything in your game than a hundred people not necessarily great you sell a thousand copies, now you're looking dangerous, you sell 10,000 copies, you'd better be able to get by on good looks and tap dancing, because you are guaranteed to have sold your game about uh, hunting vampires across Romania to someone who works for a security agency, or someone who has um, uh, engaged in small arms combat, or someone who is from Romania, and will notice if you have screwed something up. So, (laughs) Alex Roberts, everybody. Um, So the goal is to know enough to create what they, what they call in, liter- in literary theory or in drama theory, verisimilitude. And verisimilitude is often mistaken for realism. And it is mistaken for realism by people who uh, are part of the conspiracy to weaken everyone's vocabulary. Verisimilitude does not mean realism. It means the appearance of truth and accuracy. Right? It means that when you look at it, your inner sensor ideally never comes on at all. Because you look at it and it matches what you expect reality to look like and feel like and be. So the classic example is the Bourne trilogy of movies, which are masterpieces of verisimilitude and are at Pulp Fiction at their finest. Uh, Nothing like the Bourne trilogy has ever happened in the history of espionage. There are no secret mind control super assassins wandering around. If the CIA wants to ca- kill someone, it costs them a lot of money and they spend hours and hours and hours planning it and they make little maps and they build exact duplicates of the building and they run them through months at a time and then they go in and they lose a helicopter anyway. 
That is what an actual government assassination program looks like. But what Jason Bourne looks like is what we think an actual government assassin program looks like because they get all the little side bits right. You know, when you go to Naples, it looks like Naples. There's guys talking Italian. There's guys in Italian carbonara uniforms. They're carrying the right weapons. They're moving in the right way. All the part of that feels like, oh, yeah, this is what it's like if you're a super spy in Naples. It's not, but we feel it. We feel the verisimilitude. And as a game designer, just like as a dramatist or a novelist, you are attempting to create that verisimilitude and this response, that feeling of verisimilitude in your players, in your audience. Now, how do you create that? And that is where the research, half of this equation, or 90% of this equation comes in. And you have to do a lot of it. And you have to do enough of it so that you are confident that you didn't miss anything big. And depending on the field, that can be a lot or that can be less. Uh, when I wrote uh, Infernal Devices, uh, the short story about an early shotgun used to shoot as it transpired an avatar of Loigor, I read literally everything in English on 16th century shotguns. That took a day. There just isn't that much. There's a lot of stuff in German, but I'm writing the story in English. My guess is virtually everyone who reads it is going to be Anglophone. Uh, it used to be that I'd read everything in English about werewolves, and then some jack and apes began publishing more stuff about werewolves. It is impossible to read everything in English about medieval combat. It can't be done in a lifetime. There's way too much. So... If you've, got a t if you've got a territory, you have to know the limits of that territory, and the only way to know that limit is to move out into it. And uh, if you are writing in a genre that is well explored, often you can get to verisimilitude merely by reading or watching other things that have verisimilitude. Right? You don't have to have read a great deal of information about European middle-brow culture in the 1930s if, all you, if you've read everything Alan First has written, you're like, okay, I know what, what it's like to be a, 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 middle, uh, a striving middle class or upper middle class bourgeois spy in the 1930s because I've read all of Alan First's novels. I know what that should feel like. So sometimes there's shortcuts. And often you can take an individual tactic. You can go to a master. You can go to a, for God's sake, you can go to a Wikipedia article and find their list of, of sources. And then that begins you down the road. Other things, you know, God help you if you're going to say, I'm going to master all knowledge about the Minamoto and Heike civil war in Japan. Ha ha. First of all, there's a lot. Second of all, much of it is in Japanese. Third of all, everyone in America who's ever read anything about it thinks they're an expert. So getting to the level of verisimilitude is longer and harder and involves you in more work. All right, so you're, you're putting in this work, you're doing this research, you're doing the reading, and just as a backstop, just as an example... Uh, the Dracula dossier, which I co-wrote with Gareth Hanrahan and a number of other writers, um, to create the backdrop for that so that it was not immediately risible, that took about a year of research. And that was not a consistent year. That was not an academic... Well, it was my academic year, but it was not a real academic year in that a lot of it was spent going to parties and drinking instead of doing the work. But calendar-wise, that was a year of research in which pretty much everything I read for fun or leisure revolved around vampires, espionage, the history of the British Intelligence Service, Dracula, the story of Dracula, Lurie, theory about Dracula, the history of Latvian Paler, the history of Romania, the presence of Romania, Cold War, everything that went into that was a year of leisure time reading and much of a year of professional work. So that was a lot. 
Now, we got a quarter of a million words out of that. So we produced a lot. So I guess the question then is how much do you have to do by and large? My back-of-the-envelope estimate would be you should read ten times your word count. So if you're going to write 50,000 words, you should read half a million words. So if you're going to write a 50,000-word game based on a series of novels, each of those novels is uh, 100,000 words. You read 300,000 words, that's three novels. Now you've got 200,000 words of backstory, history, whatever, medieval combat. You have to have, and that's a rule of thumb. That is not a principle. The principle is what I titled this uh, talk, the iceberg method, which is once you have established this giant ball of knowledge by doing the research, by doing the reading, by watching all the movies that involve spies uh, shooting people, watching all the movies that involve vampires eating people, reading all the books, doing all the work, only show the 10% of it in your work. The other 90% has to be below the surface. Because if you're like, well, by God, I had to do all this reading, so do you, the players. I will punish you for caring as much as I do. That is going to feel really great to you, but it will not get you any more sales. And in fact, we'll get you many fewer sales because we'll say, I don't want to read all that. I don't want to do all that work. I just want to hunt a vampire. Thank you very much. So you have to submerge 90% of the work you did and only show 10. And that is harder than it sounds. And we can all think of examples of game books that have a lot of things where it's like, I did all this work, I did all this research, I'm going to show it to you. And you might look at something like a, a GURPS book and you might say, well, surely there's nothing left underneath that. But if you've written a GURPS book or if you look at the GURPS bibliographies in those books, whoever writes that book, they read 1,280 pages for that 128-page source book, I promise you. Um, and a GURPS book or a hero book or any of those sort of you know great compendious tomes is maybe where you should be thinking, this is probably the outer level of gamer cognition. This is as much as anyone cares about a topic, is 128 pages of facts. And that is an outer bound, by the way. Uh, and there are, and I know you, everyone in this room is saying, well, screw you, Ken, I care 300 pages of facts about the thing in my head. All of you have different things in your head right now. Second of all, that means that you should put down the 30 pages of thing in your head, and I'll bet you'll be able to figure out what the 10% of that thing in your head is that is the hookiest, most interesting, most connected to vampires or Cthulhu or Hollow Earth Nazis or swordsmen or elf queens or uh, street criminals or cyber war or whatever your game is about, you can find that 30 pages and put it in. And you can recognize that because you've done the reading. And again, that's what it, that's what it takes to come back around to it. It takes having done so much of the reading that it begins to rhyme with the story you want to tell. Tim Powers has uh, an anecdote about how he writes novels. He writes novels that are set, by and large, in real history, they're set in the secret history of the world. They explain weird crap behind the actions of Blackbeard or Lord Byron or Kim Philby. 
And he says he reads histories, he reads diaries, he reads journals, he reads contemporary records, and he looks for perturbations, places where the official record seems to not fit. Right? Hey, Kim Philby just stopped for a day and hung out and didn't do anything instead of defecting to Moscow like he was supposed to. What was he doing in those 24 hours? No one really knows. Uh, Doc Holliday and Ike Clanton played poker the day before the gunfight at the OK Corral. That seems odd, given that they were sworn enemies. And Ike Clanton was always talking about how he was going to kill Doc Holliday. You'd think that they would not have played poker. Who else is at that poker game? Well, another Earp. And the sheriff being, this seems less like a poker game and more like something else is going on. And it's that moment where you say, this seems like something else is going on. That's your hook. That's the shiny. That's the part you put above because that's what you can hang, to mix my metaphors, the chandelier of your story, of your game's backstory, of your action from. So you say, all right, Kim Philby spent a day dithering in Beirut because Tim Power says he was being threatened by a secret British project to destroy the genies on Mount Ararat. You might say, because he has been held in place by a vampiric seduction. Uh, similarly, the, they, they were playing poker in Tombstone the night before the OK Corral as an occult ritual to um, uh, read the future in tarot cards or as a desperate last working to hold off a demon that they all knew was coming to tear Tombstone apart. But they failed, and it came, and that was why the gunfight, that was why the vendetta ride. You're going to supply the explanation, but you're only going to get there when you've done enough of the reading to see enough perturbations that you can point them all in the same direction. And that's when you're going to know you've done enough reading, not when you feel like you know more than everyone in your game group, not when your wife is sick to death of hearing about Romania, but when you have found enough perturbations that a game can fit in there. And that's the shiny part. Can you put enough information to explain why that is shiny? Can I tell you in fewer words than it will take you to put the book down because you are bored, why it is interesting that Ike Clanton and Doc Holliday are playing cards together. Can I tell you in a page why it is interesting that Kim Philby is hanging out in Beirut for 24 hours rather than defecting? When you can do that, now what does it take to explain that? Suddenly, a chunk of your word count is gone because you've been making the shiny explained and by explaining it, you've created a sense of verisimilitude. The other place verisimilitude comes from is lived in detail, which is, again, something you're only going to get from massive reading, massive exposure. It comes from... Uh, uh, it, it, it can come from NPCs. That's a great place to bring it. You have someone interesting who's in the setting already, learning about them, saying, hey, this is what the Ayatollah Khomeini is doing now. He's actually Tehran's greatest authority on magic because that was his thesis in um, uh, Madrasa. When he went to religious school, that was what he studied, was Gnosticism and magic. <laughs> I did not know that when I started writing Tehran Nest of Spies, but you're, I damn sure put it in. So you're looking, for the, you're looking for the shiny in the research, you're looking for those perturbations. That's what's going to drive your story. The shiny is going to make it interesting, the verisimilitude is going to make it Believable. It's going to make people not question and say, hey, um, if Dracula is running everything, why did we even survive training? 
Shouldn't we have just been stopped? Shouldn't Dracula have some sort of mental power? Shouldn't Eden be doing this? Shouldn't someone be doing that? You don't ask those scenario-breaking questions because you've already bought into the scenario. You don't ask, where did Jason Bourne get a sniper rifle? You don't ask, how come this government agency that creates super soldiers loses one with a tracking chip in him for six months? How come nothing makes any sense? You don't ask those questions because the verisimilitude box has put you in it. You can build that box or that fence around your setting only by researching details. They don't have to be necessarily, as we've discussed, historically accurate details as long as they're fictionally accurate details. Okay, the, um, uh, the iceberg principle says hide 90% of your research, make sure the 10% is shiny, make sure it is sharp, make sure that ships going by will stick on it, make sure that players will gravitate toward it, make sure that it provides a place to play, a place to have adventure. There's no point in having something shiny that takes place in the past. There's no point in having something shiny that does not inform what the players are doing today, that does not give them an option, or an exploration, a power, an ability, uh, a way into the setting. So that's another way you can tell what's shiny. Um, and when you are researching something and you go along and you find yourself asking a question over and over or saying, I can never remember, which one is it? Is it Diocletian or is it Theodosius? Which one? I can never remember which That's where maybe you need to put some little struts in, in the book and give an explanation. Give a game reason for people to care the difference. One of them is on the side of the vampires. That's Diocletian. That's why he's hunting Christians, because they got the sign of the cross. They can fight vampires. Theodosius, therefore must be on the side of the werewolves who hate vampires. And that's because he banned the games where people would, you know, fight animals to the death. Okay, great. Now I've found a reason that Diocletian is a vampire or vampire lover. Theodosius is a werewolf lover. Now all I have to do is just read biographies of them looking for proof that one of them is a vampire and proof that one of them is a werewolf. And when you start looking for patterns, you find patterns. This is not really necessarily immediately in the iceberg method, but it is something that happens over and over and over when you do research uh, we are pattern-matching animals. Uh, when you read something with a preconceived narrative in mind, you will find the narrative you were looking for. Confirmation bias. Let it work for you. Not just for cable news. Um, I think that may be... I may have gotten all the way around the iceberg. That may be my 10% of shiny for, for the topic in terms of an immediate uh, presentation, in terms of immediate discussion. Um, this I'm just making sure I I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one more thing on that pattern matching I think and so the other way to do it rather than say you know read a biography of Diocletian to find out why he's a vampire or why he's a vampire lover is to say if Diocletian is a vampire what else has to be true and then start looking for confirmation bias somewhere else. When I was doing Dracula dossier, it was, okay, Dra we know that Bram Stoker cut out the earthquake at the end of the novel. That must be part of the cover-up, because it is shiny, that Bram Stoker at the last minute takes a volcano out of a book and hides it. And you're like, well, yeah, that's got to be a cover-up, because he literally covered that up. We know that. Where else are there earthquakes in Romania? Oh, look at that, 1977 and 1940. What else is going on in 1940 in Romania? Oh, that's the beginning of the Iron Guards, a cult purge. 
in their attempt to uh, overthrow the fascist government of Romania for an even more fascist government of Romania. Now I know that that has to be part of it, because not only is that shiny, it's sorcerers trying to overthrow fascists with the Nazis coming in on the side of the fascists uh, against these super-fascists. Crazy. When, when, when the Wehrmacht is the good guys, you know you are in a game-worthy situation. Um, and so I then had to read as much as I possibly could about the uh, Iron Legion coup in Romania, and again, reading everything in English, not a uh, not as hard as reading everything about um, <laughs> better documented parts of World War II. Because I recognize that that's the kind of thing that is going to demonstrate occult involvement in Romanian history around this earthquake. And I knew that there were earthquakes because I'd found that first earthquake. So follow those patterns as you build them and answer your own question. If this, then what else has to be true? If Dracula's tied to earthquakes in Romania, what is he doing during these other two great historical earthquakes? If Dracula's tied to earthquakes, what else can we do about earthquakes? Who else was weirdly consumed by earthquake curiosity? Uh, are British radar stations and British seismology stations basically the same thing? What else is going on in earthquake research? Other kinds of questions you can ask, or you can say, what else is British intelligence up to that looks magic-y? And that's another great question, and you can follow that trail as long as you want. And so you're looking to confirm your ridiculous theory. Uh, ridiculous in the sense of it is, or technically ludicrous. It's your ludicrous theory because it's game-worthy. Ludic, meaning game. Uh, so it's your, uh, it's your ludicrous theory that you're looking to confirm. And once you start looking for facts to confirm your ludicrous theory, you will find them. And that is what, you know, the ancient aliens program and the whole metaphysics shelf in the bookstore and all manner of things will demonstrate to you. All right, so that is the uh, that is at least the first cut at the how uh, to do this, and I think I'm going to stop there because I'm out of things that I know pretty much for sure, and I'm going to let you guys ask anything that you want to ask in Ray research for design. I did promise I think in the in the thing to talk about when you should research other people's games, and I would say if your game is in a genre, you should read or ideally play, but certainly read every other game in your genre, which is reason enough not to do another fucking fantasy game. Um, but uh, if you're doing a game of uh, spies, you should read all the spy games, which I did. If you're doing a game of vampire hunting, you should read all the vampire hunting games, which I did. Uh, just to make sure that there's not something that everyone else expects to be there that you didn't put in. And that sort of goes to verisimilitude in terms of it's verisimilitude in play. How can this be a vampire hunting game if there are no chase rules? Yeah, I guess that is a question. I should put those in. All right. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's that little bit. We can go back to that if people want. Um, or we can continue to talk about research uh, of the real world. Um, so, yeah, who's got a, a question or anything to toss back into that pot? Yeah. As the uh, consulting occultist, uh, where would... Where, where would the you go to look for like modern religious horror, uh, occult horror, fantasy stuff. All right. Um, the first thing, I mean, and really, it is true for two reasons that your first recourse can often be to Wikipedia. First reason, it's really fast. 
It will get you a, a sketchy outline of what's going on. It will often have sources that you can follow. That's all good. When you're doing research, especially if it's a topic you don't know well, having a beginning place, even if it's a fallacious beginning place, is better than having no beginning place. Second, everyone who plays your game is going to do the same Wikipedia search you just did. So you have to incorporate that into the verisimilitude. Even if you later on discover this Wikipedia article is nonsense, it's written by a crazy person, you will have to then respond in the game setting to what they're going to expect coming into that setting. So if the Wikipedia article says that uh, the ancient Egyptians used swords and you've looked it up and said, nope, they used axes. You have to say, well, these swords are obviously from the Hyksos. They brought them in from Syria. That's what's going on with these swords. That's why you think there's going to be swords here or whatever else. You have to present a sense of, okay, I get it, that the players want. For specifically the question about religious horror, um, I would begin by saying, all right, what do we think is scary and terrifying? And so you would say, all right, I'm going to look at cults. I'm going to look at uh, exorcisms. I'm going to look at demonic possession. I'm going to look at that. There are, honest to God, real-life exorcists that go around exercising people. Many of them have written books and memoirs. I would start by reading the most lurid and trashy one of those that you can find because you're looking to play a horror game. And if there's a proper noun, go research it. If he says, I was trained by Father Amore, you're like, I'm going to find out what this Father Amore is up to. And maybe you never find anything else about him except that he was trained in this one monastery. right? Let's say he was trained in St. Gall Monastery in Switzerland. You go through your research and ten months later, you got another guy who was trained at St. Gall. Now, you and I both know that's because St. Gall just cranks these guys out by the carload lot. But now you've got two guys who are provably tangentially connected to exorcisms who are both trained at St. Gall. We now know where the secret core of the Vatican's exorcism training, that's like the Vatican's uh, West Point for exorcists, is in the basement of St. Gall, the crypts of St. Gall. That's where they go down and, you know, ten go down and nine come up and then they're all badasses, that kind of thing. Um and I would, I would go to the, the, the real-life memoirs and things like that, the demonic possession, the same deal. And then, you know, once you get out, even outside the, the Catholic Church, the, there's, there's, no, there's no quality control with your Protestant exorcisms. They go bananas. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of, uh, with a topic like that, that's sort of a juicy pop culture topic, there's going to be plenty of places to go. And uh, by and large, any book with an index is better than any book without an index, just because it's easier for you to say, sink all, sink all, sink all, sink all. Yeah, there it is. Or it's going to be easier to find names and move around. And also, an index means that the publisher cared remotely about the book. So it will have a somewhat better chance of not sending you to nonsense land. If, and that's probably not what you want in this beginning part. Um, I would say also, a lot of it is going to be for that kind of game, you're going to want to watch The Prophecy. You're going to want to watch Legion. You're going to want to watch all the Exorcist movies. And, and I don't mean watch. I want to. I mean, you're going to have to. Because you're going to want to know what that, what that feels like. You're going to have to watch Constantine, you poor bastard. Not the, not the show, the movie. Yeah. Well, I like parts of the movie. And then they let Rachel Weisz out of the bathtub, and I stopped liking the movie. Um, yeah, so you're, you're going to be looking at the sort of research where you're looking at uh, popular culture interpretations. Um, you and again, you might want to look at a nominee. You might want to look at Heaven and Earth. You might want to look at a bunch of other games and say, what What do they think are the questions players ask in this kind of setting? And even if you're saying, well, those questions are stupid. We're not playing angels and demons. We're playing mortals. 
so we don't really need to nominate, but I need to know what a nominee sort of thought hell looked like because they're working for hell or whatever it is. Um, yeah, that's where I would go. And then you can go, you can ride the medieval demonology well as deep as you want to take it. You can ride uh, angel and angel mysticism as deep as you want to take it. That's the sort of thing where, no, you can't read it all in English. You just have to find the things that look the most ornate or the most hooky. So, you know, more proper nouns. Uh, a nonfiction is better than a memoir, but a memoir is better than a uh, sort of a vague uh, coffee table ebook type thing. I hope that was at all helpful. Anybody else? Eric? You, you don't get to both give me the side eye and not ask a question. Hey, I was actually seeing if anyone else was going to ask me but how big of a, I mean, I mean, you'll latch on, I mean, you, you've latched on to, in your example, like this one guy went to this one monastery when you were talking for him, but how big of a shiny do you think you really need to hook on to? I mean, how bizarre an event to really flush it. Well, I mean, I, I don't know that bizarre is necessarily the synchronon. The thing is gameable and interesting. We know that it's gameable if the Vatican's running a secret West Point for exorcists in the basement of St. Gall. Because you're all, all of you have just written that fucking game in your heads. So it might not have to be bizarre. It might just be like, you are uh, researching the 16th century and you're like, holy crap. I think, I, I, I've never heard of this battle, uh, but uh, it turns out at the Battle of Ivry in France in 1590, um, uh, like 12,000 people died. That's a lot of people in a French battle or whatever. And it's like, well, I mean, that's kind of a thing. That's a battle. That sounds neat. People like the word battle. I'm going to find out if that's part of my thing. And you, you go and you look at Ivry and it's like, well, there's a lot of werewolf sightings around that battle. I mean, in the years and the area. So it, you, you did a histo histogram of werewolves in France. They're sort of around that battle. And it's like, can I prove that anyone at the Battle of Ivry was a werewolf? Or can I pretend to prove it? Can I allude to it? Can I libel these fine people and say that they may or may not have been werewolves or werewolf simps? So you didn't start with a werewolf. You started with, like, man, that battle is awful. And people will say, well, this is carnage. People like carnage. Uh, they may not recognize Ivry. You may say, I don't think Ivry's you know, sexy enough. I'm going to do a different 16th century battle. I'm going to do the Armada, right? Or I'm going to do Lepanto. Because those are, those are big names. Those are A-list battles. But a lot of times, um, if you are in the position of sharing a secret with the player or the reader, you are in a better position. Because it's like, hey, want to hear something fun about the Spanish Armada? Everyone's like, yeah, sure, why not? You're like, hey, want to hear something fun about the Battle of Ivry? Now it's like, let me give you a tip. Nobody else knows about the Battle of Ivry. This is just you and me. This is our, our little secret. And then if your secret is werewolves, they're like, now I'm, I'm all in on the Battle of Ivry. I didn't care anything about it. Now I, now I know there's werewolves in it. So there has to be something that's gameable, that's hooky, but it doesn't have to necessarily be something that really sticks out like a sore thumb. If you are, in, if you think that fact is innately interesting enough, if it's uh, if it's Stalingrad or the life of Davy Crockett or something, you're like Davy Crockett is interesting. Everyone loves Davy Crockett. You have no idea anything about him. You're, you know, you're coonskin cap, Alamo, kilt in a bar, etc. Um, 
But you go and you look into it, and it's like, wow, man, that Davy Crockett, he lived life. He did. What made him go to Texas? Was it just losing an election? Really? That's what makes Davy Crockett go to Texas? And you're like, well, now I'm going to find out. Was he going to kill something? Was he running away from Davy Crockett? He can't be running away. He had to be going to kill something. And so now you can research Texas legendary, or you can say, was Santa Ana a vampire? You can do all kinds of other things, but you know that Davy Crockett is a key. You go, you research his life, and I guarantee you there will be crap in Davy Crockett's life that will curl your hair because... He was an interesting guy. So the fact that the, the hook there was just Davy Crockett is neat. It wasn't anything bizarre that you found out. It was just you decided you wanted Davy Crockett to be a part of your game, right? Is that sort of... I mean, it, it, it sounds like a cheat to say you'll know it when you see it, but if your immediate thought on seeing a fact is, I want to use this in a game, that's literally what you want to do to the reader. Well, I mean, I have a luxury for primarily concerning myself with something that doesn't have a game set within a century of it. But because uh, all my stuff is like 1690. Mm-hmm. But yes, it is. You'll know when you see it, right? You know, I'll just read something. I'm working on an Africa source book for my Witch Hunter game. I read stuff about Africa. We have a, we have the wonderful luxury of being in the United States and knowing absolutely nothing uh, about that region whatsoever. So when you read things, something is interesting. It can grab you, and then you. The confirmation bias thing is true. You read through it and eventually you find something about a person that means that there's Queen Nzinga of Congo. She was a queen. You go through there, you find out she was born with the umbilical cord around her neck. Well, you find out in the legend of her people, that means she's fated to be a queen. She's supposed to be important. It's, a, it's, a, it's an omen. And then you read more into it and you end up with a whole story about her. Right. So there, that would be an example of what we're talking about. Um... Jeff, were you raising your hand? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Or are you just you're, you're just trying to cause trouble? I can talk not okay. About yeah. Trouble. Right. yeah. Not about the movie. Okay. Right. Uh, is there a point where having those incongruous things can sort of undercut your verisimilitude? Um, I have sort of an example. I was listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, and you're talking about Time Watch and the, uh, the samurai appearing in Mexico. And halfway through the conversation, I couldn't really tell if that was reinforcing the idea of the incongruous history or making it more unbelievable. Um, Alright, let's talk about the samurai in Mexico. That's a good example. Um, Jap- Japan in the 16th century and 17th century is going through the first of its two great modernizations. And in the, seventh, in the 16th and 17th century, they go through what the kingdoms of Europe are going through about the same time. The one guy with the most cannon says, I'm king of the whole area and you're nothing. It's happening in France, it's happening in England, it's happening in um, uh, Prussia, it's happening in Poland. It's not happening in Germany, much to their chagrin. Uh, but you're having the formation of nation-states. It's similarly happening in the Ottoman Empire, it's just that the Turks had already conquered stuff, so it's harder to tell. It's happening in India, the Mughals. So the Japanese are doing the same thing. And that means that everyone who's on the other side of the Tokugawas is suddenly out of a job. Many of them are samurai. They do not stick around to find out if they will be executed because they peeked ahead and know the answer is yes. So a bunch of samurai go off to overthrow the kingdom of Thailand, which is its own fascinating story. A bunch of the others just start, you know, doing mercenary work and bodyguard work and sellsword work and uh, ronin work up and down the coast of the Pacific Ocean. At some point, some of them wind up in the Philippines. The uh, Spanish run a regular treasure galleon from the Philippines to Mexico. They recruit the Japanese samurai because they're tough badasses. Spaniards know a tough badass when they see one. They bring him to Mexico. And now they're put to work guarding silver caravans. And 
they're really kind of ideal guards because they're badasses, and literally everyone in Mexico doesn't know them from Adam, so they can't, like, do an insider trading deal with buddies. So they're kind of perfect. So if you're saying samurai have turned up in Mexico, and you're setting your game in 16th century, or rather 17th century Mexico, that era, your era, really, of Mexico, you... um, uh, you present that samurai, and, and you're right. It, initially, it's like, what is this, time travel? People putting samurai in Mexico? That's crazy talk. But by giving that explanation that I just gave, which is a paragraph, you have now, first, you've done three things. First, you've told a whole bunch of gameable story. Because you're like, what about those guys in Thailand? What about those mercenaries in the Philippines wandering around whacking people with katanas? That's kind of cool. There's these guys in Mexico. Now this world seems really real and better, it seems really exciting because there's this trail of samurai along it. The second thing you've done is you've reinforced the sense that, yes, I know what I'm talking about when I'm setting this game in 17th century Mexico, back off Jack, I found samurai there. Before you got up this morning I was putting samurai in Mexico. And third of all, it gives you another thing to look for, right? Because it's an out-of-place element. It's a place to hang your story. You you recognize that. And it's also a thing that's like, all right, if I'm in Mexico and we've got Aztec death gods, do the Japanese have a death god? Do I want to say it's the same death god as as, uh, uh, Miklatikutli? Or do I want to say it's a different death god? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Are they fighting? Is Yama the death king fighting Miklatikutli? Or are they the same dude? And so you might look into Japanese mythology and Aztec mythology and say, Fighting or friends? Fighting or friends? Okay, they're friends. All right, that's cool. Now there's a global death cult going on. Are these samurai working for Yama? Is, is that the, the big plan? He's got a, a big plan to take over Mexico because of all that death energy that the Spanish are just wasting now by enslaving people instead of humans sacrificing them? Those lazies. And now you've got a, a, a bigger, deeper story, and because you're hunting it sort of in this unexpected area, you've created a sense of dimensionality to your setting. But if all you're doing is saying, this game will be taking place in 17th century Mexico, and there's a samurai, that will seem weird. But if all you do is say, there's a samurai uh, from the Manila Treasure Galleon, uh, hired by the Spanish in the Pacific, sailed across, now he works as a guard, that's all you need, really, to provide verisimilitude. But if you found a samurai in uh, colonial Mexico, I think you can hang more on him than just an NPC, personally. But but again, that's the sort of thing you can use it as a centerpiece. You can put the whole thing into your warring death cults, or you can say, nope, we just got a samurai to give verisimilitude, because that's awesome. And that verisimilitude there is not the illusion of, oh, thank God, there's samurai. It's like, well, this guy must have done his research. He found a fucking samurai. So you're, you're conning the audience. You're selling to the audience. Jeff? Yes. Absolutely. Um, with that, you just look at what sells. Right? If you look at the History Channel, it turns out the Swiss Army knife is Nazis. <laughs> Everything is Nazis. Now, the, I mean, that used to be, it used to be the Hitlery Channel. Now it's the Alien Channel. So aliens must be another Swiss Army knife. And maybe, I mean, you can't study all aliens. First of all, there aren't any. And second of all, 
if you study just all science fiction aliens, you'll you'll never get done. So you're going to say, I'm only going to figure out about the Greys. They're the aliens everybody knows. They're everybody's friends from Close Encounters. They're anyone enemies from X-Files. Greys will do me good. Or maybe you say, I'm going to study the Martians from H.G. Wells. They're cool. They're hip. They're steampunk. People love steampunk. And so if I put blood-drinking, bear-sized octopus monsters in things, people will say, that's A, shiny. B, that's fucked up. And C... They'll say, oh, that's cool. That's gameable. I want to fight that. I want to stop that. I want to kill it. Apparently, I can't just sneeze on it. I have to figure out a plan B. So your Swiss Army knives, your what I call universal joints, uh, are going to be things that show up in the sort of the worst, uh, the, 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 the dodgier sections of bookstores and the worst parts of cable. So you're going to go to your, your, your popular history section and you're going to say, okay, that's sex, but that's Freemasons. That's Templars. I probably can't make my game about sex if I want to sell it in a store. So sadly, we have to rule that out. But I think I can put Templars in anything. Or uh, things, that people, um, th- things that people already like, you know, like uh, Cthulhu. Obviously, there's your classic, but you can also look at things uh, like your uh, like your demons, you know, Satan. People love Satan; he sells. Uh, so there, and and the great thing about Satan is that Satan, of course, is like uh, he fits a lot of genres, a lot of historical epochs. Uh, Nazis fewer, uh, but they go across genres because you can go, you know, steampunk, uh, World War II, all kinds of things with your Nazis, alternate histories. Um, Cthulhu, of course, is everywhere. So I think that for a formalist look at what's a good universal joint, you just want something that has proven cross-market sales power and that uh, occurs... Um, what do I want to say? That, that uh, uh, is, uh, is stretchable or, or keeps showing up. And the, the classic example in Western culture is King Arthur. Right? If you look at King Arthur, he begins historically as a lie the Welsh tell themselves to make themselves feel better. Then he becomes a lie the Welsh tell the English to make the English uh, feel good about themselves. Then he becomes a lie the English tell them about themselves. In between that, he becomes a lie the French make up about things to say, well, that's a cool guy. We want to tell stories about him. Then Germans get into it. There's Icelandic stories about King Arthur, right? King Arthur, for some reason, is just hooky. People love King Arthur, and he shows up everywhere. And now because he has been shown up everywhere, because people are saying, well, actually, King Arthur was a Sarmatian cavalryman from Roman times, or actually, King Arthur was the guy that built Stonehenge. And you're like, dude, Merlin built Stonehenge. Back off. <laughs> But the well-actualing of King Arthur is one more place he has sunk that hook. So King Arthur is like the uber example of the Swiss Army Knife guy, and he shows up everywhere, and obviously there is a number of games about King Arthur in one guise or another, uh, but you can bring him anywhere. He's, he's, he's all over the map. Um, and you'll recognize them when you see them. Another possibility is Star Wars, right? That's hooky. Everybody loves Star Wars. You can't use Star Wars, sadly, because it's expensive. Um, but you can put... If you're like, can I put a guy in black armor? And can I maybe give him, like, you know, smoke follows him everywhere so his breath 
rasps when he talks? And can they have awesome flaming swords that are not so much flaming as just glowing? Can I make that feel like that? And then you can say, all right, I can't do that. That's going to really get me in trouble. But I can go back to the Hidden Fortress. I can look at what George Lucas looked at. I can look at dogfights. And it's like, oh, look at that. You know, there's a guy in uh, World War One who went and blew up uh, Zeppelins, and his name was Frank Luke. He was the great balloon buster. He was a World War One ace. It's like, okay, I got a guy named Luke who's a hot pilot and flies at giant gray things and blows them up. What what else can I do about Frank Luke? Can I do something with this? Is this a thing? Can I drop him in? Is he hooky yet? Are people interested if I do my World War One game and it's secretly a Star Wars game? And people don't know that it's secretly a Star Wars game, but somehow they keep thinking, God, this is sort of a Star Wars-y game. Do I, can I make my fictional German uh, Zeppelin commander? And he's there in his uh, helmet with the spike on it, but he's got a black face mask because he's always standing out on the thing in the, in the high winds and maybe a breathing apparatus so that he can breathe in that thin air up there where the Zeppelins are. It's like, wow. And I wonder, can he be Groff something? And you look at, is there a German name that's kind of like Vader? But I can just sort of, oh, maybe Weber. Maybe he's Groff Weber. That's not bad. And then you'd start researching, and it would turn out, because it always turns out that, no, there is a guy named Weber, and he was on this other Zeppelin over here, and he's got nothing to do with this. But now it's like, okay, this guy Weber is like a clone, or a fake, or a pretend, or this guy just got reassigned. And I can tell you that there is a German uh, Zeppelin admiral, and this is the part, by the way, that I'm making up, because I haven't done that research. Frank Luke was real. But... um but, you know, if you find a guy named Carl von Weber who's commanding a Zeppelin on the Eastern Front, and you're like, well, I'm just going to put him on the Western Front and not tell anyone, you list him and you say, uh, he's been transferred from the Eastern Front because of this emergency with uh, Frank Luke. He has to stop Frank Luke. And now you've got this whole story going on. You've done secret Star Wars. No one knows it's there, except everyone will know it's there. And now you've juiced up your setting with that. Now, that's kind of a, 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 a special pleading. That's kind, of a, that's kind of a sharp practice. And maybe you can't do it every time, but it's the kind of thing you can be on the lookout for. How can I make my setting feel like something that people have already enjoyed? And it's not a matter of pastiche. It's a matter of finding those elements and presenting them maybe in a different light, in a 30-degree, 60-degree angle. Um, how important is actual historicity to verisimilitude. Like, like I, I've, I've read some, like, like occult, like, uh, uh, Keys of Solomon, sort of, like, yeah. totally made up, written thousand years later, doesn't cover anything. But every, I mean, it's great, it's a good, it's a good hook for mm-hmm. things. Like, does it matter that it never existed and was written by some guy thousands of years later? Well, I mean, all right, let's talk about the Key of Solomon, um, since you brought it up. Uh, we have not coordinated this. man is totally unknown to me. Um, the Key of Solomon is written, as far as anyone can tell, probably in the late 15th century. It's in about 115 different versions, 25 different languages, including Bohemian. Um, and it's purported to be the keys of good old King Solomon. So it's supposed to come from 1000 BC and theoretically have been written in Hebrew. Um, but it wasn't. So... The part that is needed for verisimilitude is to, if you have a grimoire in your game, if you say it's the Key of Solomon, you can get the Key of Solomon. It's online. It's been translated. Joseph Peterson put it up online. Go through there and find things in that grimoire that match what you want to do. 
don't misquote the Key of Solomon and say, this is in the Key of Solomon because people can check. They'll say, that's not in the Key of Solomon. Or if it is, you say, this is in the Albanian version of the Key of Solomon that no one has translated. And the thing that makes this version interesting is it's got all these real rituals and all these others are a smokescreen. So use your unhistoricity as a way to restore verisimilitude. Or you could even say, yeah, King Solomon wrote this shit down, buried it in a bunch of jars, it got dug up by Templars and brought back, and that's where the Key of Solomon came from. That's our backstory. But don't just make up the Key of Dave and do that because no one gives a crap, right? I mean, if you're going to do the Necronomicon, if you've got an imaginary magic book, nine times out of ten, a real magic book will do just as well. The tenth time, use the fucking Necronomicon. It's public domain. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but if you've got, you know, if you're like, no, I really need to have this thing, uh, and it has to be exactly this thing. For example, in Dracula Dossier, I wanted a book that was the book that Dracula studied magic at in the Scholomance. I had to give it a name. Uh, it's called Le Dragon Noir, The Black Dragon. Now, when I wrote that, I had not yet done the research. I was like, well, there is the red dragon that we know about. That's a real thing. There will be a black dragon. That will be Dracula, because Dracula is Dracul, son of the red, blah, blah. Then I'm doing the research, and sure enough, there is a grimoire called the black dragon. And there's a grimoire called the green dragon, frankly. And so it's like, well, I will read these and see what they are. And fortunately, my saving effect is that the black dragon is super hard to find and really expensive. So no one is going to back check me on it. But I then give a sight and say, there are two purported translations of the Black Dragon that appeared at such a time and such a time. These are, um, uh, these are corruptions of the original Black Dragon text that Dracula studied from. So I've covered my bases because I didn't want to spend the hundred bucks to read some jerk-off occultist's version of the Black Dragon. So that is how important I would say. I didn't change the name to some dumb name. I kept my cool name. But I honored the actual black dragon, and I did not. Uh, uh, but I didn't feel it was necessary to go right down to the real black dragon and then pretend it was all about Dracula. Uh, I think that with the key of Solomon, there's so much weird goo in that already that you can just use that, and it will power your game more because it feels realer because it is real. I mean, it's not real. You know what I mean? It's not, really it's not real, real, but it is a real grimoire. That people really wrote a lot of. Uh, we have time for one more question. Like that one. Uh, so at the beginning, you mentioned that fantasy is like from fantasy is both its boring and also that there's so much you're competing with and that people have expectations that you can't get off of it. Right. Is there anything that's in that sort of in the historical canon of gaming? Yeah. The great thing about Cthulhu is that everyone knows there's the good shit and the bad shit. And if you've read the good shit, you don't have to have read the bad shit. And the good shit is 50, well, it's not even 50, because much of Lovecraft stuff is bad shit as well. But you read about 30 stories and you've read everything A list in the Cthulhu mythos. Super easy to do. And you don't have to honor anybody else because no one else does. Or like, as long as you're honoring the OG, you're good. Um, I would say World War II is in the place where you can't master it. You can't do it. Um, you can get close to it. I mean, we've, uh, we've all been steeped in World War II movies and World War II lore and Time Life books and the rest of it. But you can't master it. You have to sort of narrow it down and focus in. And I would say that same thing is true about fantasy. If you want to do a fantasy game, if you are ignoring my hard-won advice, and you're like, I'm going to do a fantasy game, screw him. 
then decide what flavor of fantasy are you doing and try and narrow it down. Am I doing a, a gem-like urbane world that owes as much to the uh, Arabian Nights and Viraconium as it does to anything else? Then read those two, look at games that are based around those, uh, and then use that to, to focus your flavor and your, and your hookiness and your feel. Um, if you're saying, I'm going to do elves in the forest, well, there you go. Good luck. Enjoy your life. If you're going to do however fantasy King Arthur, well, we got King Arthur. Why not just use King Arthur? He's more Arthur-y. Um, so that's sort of my answer there, is, is you can narrow your subgenre down, just like if I'm doing a World War II game. It's like, I'm not doing all of World War II. That's crazy people talk. I'm doing the Iron Guard coup in Romania in 1941 and nothing else. Whatever your agents get up to in all the rest of World War II is up to you. I'm only caring about this vampire part. Um, and again, you can go crazier and crazier with it if you're like, nope, this is the World War II is the secret war between vampires and werewolves, and I'm going to figure out who's on whose side. That's a, that's a job of work. You have invited a great deal of angry back chat on the internet, and I do not covet your position. Um, but what you will need to do is you know, know enough about World War II, you don't accidentally get a bunch of people saying, which side is Italy on? Oh, I forgot about Italy. <laughs> you need to have you know, answered that. But the way to do that is to is to drill down and focus, and that's certainly true in fantasy, and it's true in space opera or any other big, broad, impossible to put your arms around fictional genre. All right, that was it. I hope everyone felt that this was uh, directed eventually. Thank you very much for coming out and letting me bounce things off you. Thank you.